Our scripture reading uh, for today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 16 to 39. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. This is God's holy word. We've been following Mark's story through his gospel for, I said, the last five months. You know, the ancient Cicero. He was a Roman, a politician, and a philosopher, and a writer. He lived in the century before Jesus' day. Cicero said that crucifixion was the most cruel and horrifying punishment. It was the preferred execution method for lower class people, for slaves, for violent criminals, for prisoners of war. For non-Roman citizens, it, it was invented by the Romans to induce fear upon subjugated populations. One commentator put it this way, while 
Jewish nationalism led to Jesus' arrest. Roman nationalism led Jesus to the cross. The crucifixion is perhaps the greatest stumbling block for people around the world. We're in a Western scientifically based society and you might think, well, the resurrection, that's what people struggle with the most when they consider Christianity. But across time and the centuries and around the world, the crucifixion is the big thing. That's the big stumbling block. The idea that God could suffer. The idea that God had to suffer. That's the big stumbling block. But to appreciate God's salvation, you have to understand God's suffering. If you don't comprehend and embrace the suffering of God, you'll never become a Christian. Or if you're a Christian, you'll never grow in your Christian faith. If you cannot embrace the suffering of God and what it means to you. So I want to invite you today to to see with me the horror of the crucifixion and, and to consider its meaning and then finally to celebrate its redemption. The horror of the cross, the meaning of the cross, and the redemption of the cross. First, we have to understand the horror of the crucifixion. And it really begins with talking about Jesus' humiliation. The Roman soldiers, they were rank and file, they were rank and file guys. You know, they, they were in, enlisted guys. They were common soldiers there in Jerusalem. And by reading the passage, you can see that they assumed the worst about Jesus. They assumed that anybody deserving a crucifixion. It was probably like that guy Barabbas, a rebel, an upstart, a usurper, a dangerous threat, a terrorist, a threat to Caesar, to the honor of Rome. So immediately, oh, somebody's ready for crucifixion? Immediately skeptical, more than skeptical. These are soldiers. They had probably lost friends in skirmishes with Jewish upstarts in the past during, during that challenging, testy century in Palestine. So their mocking of Jesus and their brutality upon him, the the purple robe and the crown of thorns and all the, the false mocking bows and prostration, the beatings, the beatings. Uh, This was a tense, pleasurable, almost euphoric moment for these soldiers. They are, they are giving to Jesus the payback that they would want to give to any Jew who is worthy of crucifixion. That's what's going on behind the brutality and the mockery. The, sol- the soldiers are, are letting out steam as a result of a hard military life. Not only do we have to look and consider the the humiliation Jesus went through, we have to consider the intense physical trauma. Earlier Earlier in Mark chapter 15, we're told that Jesus, before he was crucified, before he was mocked by the soldiers, he was taken to be scourged. 
after Pilate pronounced the death penalty on him. And scourging was this process where they, they, took a, they took a leather whip and it was woven with bone and metal. Um, and they beat him so severely uh, that he had lost enough blood and was weak enough that he couldn't carry the crossbeam. It's why the passage says that they found some guy named Simon who was just walking by. And they compelled him by force to come and help Jesus carry the crossbeam because he was so weak from the flogging. Criminals were, were hung on, on a wooden crossbeam and they, they were usually either roped or nailed by the wrist to this crossbeam. And then after carrying it out to Golgotha, it was the execution site outside of Jerusalem. Uh, probably most cities had an execution site. Uh, then then they, they attached the crossbeam uh, to a post and then would nail the criminal's feet into the post. Bringing an immense amount of pain, hitting on some major nerves. And most men would hang there naked. Apparently from the text, Jesus is not hanging there naked, probably because of Jewish uh, tradition, maybe the Sanhedrin convinced the Romans to not hang him there naked. But men typically were hang, would hang there naked up to three days. Usually took one, two, three days for somebody to die uh, by crucifixion. And usually death came as a result of hypovolemic shock. Uh, the organs, the major organs uh, fail because the heart can't pump blood adequately around the body. Or exhaustion, asphyxia. Because the position in which a criminal would hang on a Roman cross was made breathing extremely difficult and very painful. Or heart failure. So the wine mixed with myrrh that Jesus has offered. And scholars don't know if the the Roman soldiers offered him this concoction or whether it was the, the women, the sympathetic women who were his friends that were standing by, but he's offered this tonic of wine and myrrh. It was basically a primitive narcotic. It was to induce drowsiness. It, it was, in a sense, to make it easier and, and quicker to die. But the passage, Mark tells us that Jesus refused it, right? It made me think of the movie Braveheart. Most of you are old enough to remember Mel Gibson's Braveheart from the 90s where William Wallace, played by Mel Gibson, he's about to be beheaded, right? And, and that woman gives him a tonic to basically deaden things so that he doesn't have to go through it. And then what does he do? He spits the tonic out. And so you see Jesus here refusing to be pacified. Apparently, he wanted to be in full command of his faculties. He fully embraced his suffering. He did not shrink from any aspect of it. He died relatively quickly. From the passage, it seems that, that he hung there for maybe six hours, which compared to one or two or three days is relatively short. One of the Gospels actually says that Pilate was surprised at how quickly he died. Uh, contemporary doctors guess that the reason Jesus died so quickly was because of internal hemorrhaging as a result of extreme emotional stress. Emotional stress on top of the physical trauma. Not only was it a humiliating death and a traumatic death 
from a physical perspective, but it was a lonely death. He says these words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Now that's not a, it's not a Greek translation of what Jesus said. That's the original Aramaic phrase that Jesus would have uttered. And then Mark translates it for his readers. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting verbatim the beginning of Psalm 22. If you read Psalm 22, you should read it this week. Read it before Good Friday, the whole thing. The end of Psalm 22 is this victory chant. It's like this raucous, joyful victory chant. The beginning of Psalm 22 is a lament. It's a sad lament. It's like singing the blues. The psalmist is overwhelmed because it seems like God has neglected and forsaken him. And here Jesus quotes right from Psalm 22, which is profound. Never, ever, outside of time and space and in any condition can God the Father and God the Son be separated from one another. Jesus said, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. I and the Father are one. Under no circumstances outside of time and space can God the Father and God the Son be separated. But in this one moment, when Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, hung on a Roman cross, God the Father and God the Son, only in that instant in time and space, were separated from one another. In 33 years of human experience, Jesus had never experienced a lack of of the presence of his heavenly father. And from all eternity, it was something that he had never experienced. You can say that on the cross, Jesus literally experienced hell, which is ultimately being separated from your creator, from his goodness, from his love, from his generosity. Sinful humanity cannot endure the presence of a holy God. And when Jesus hung there, he took upon himself the sins of the world, as his cousin John the Baptist years ago had said of him. And bringing the sins of the world upon himself separated him from his heavenly father. And so he cried out in anguish and an intense grief, my God, why have you forsaken me? Later on, the apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that God made him to be sin who knew no sin. So for a moment, can you, can you picture the horror? Can you see it? Can you just imagine Jesus on that Roman cross? Can you picture the humiliation and the trauma and the loneliness of the cross? What does it mean? What does that mean as you see him there? Well, there's so many things we can talk about from this passage. We can talk about why the great veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom and its significance. We can talk about the things that the religious leaders said to him in mockery. We just don't have a lot of time. So I want to focus for our purposes this morning simply on what the visible sight of Jesus hanging on the cross meant to the Roman centurion who was overseeing the whole process and watching from below. 
The centurion sees all this take place. And after Jesus dies, he says, truly, this man was the son of God. The first great confession in Mark's gospel was in chapter 8. You remember when Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ. Well, the second great confession of Mark's story is here by a Gentile, by this Roman soldier who says, truly, this man was the son of God. And these two confessions stand as supportive pillars to Mark's story. You get to know Jesus until Peter says, you're the Christ. And then you see Jesus face tragedy and strife with the Jewish leaders and ultimately with the Roman government, all culminating in his death. And then hearing a Roman, a Gentile, a representative of Caesar himself say, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, when when he said that, he didn't mean what Christians mean by saying the son of God. He, he didn't understand Christian theology. He didn't even know the Jewish Old Testament. So when a Christian like myself says Jesus is the son of God, uh, the centurion wasn't being theologically precise. He would have referred to Caesar as a son of God. But that's what makes it so important. Why, why would the centurion attribute the honor and integrity and glory of Caesar to a poor Jewish man who had just died a criminal's death. I think the answer is in verse 39. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. In this way, those words are important. It wasn't just that Jesus died. It was how Jesus died that made the soldier marvel. Think about it. Jesus hadn't performed any miracles. He doesn't get himself off the cross, although other people egged him on to do that. No profound teachings, no parables. He just hangs there and suffers. He just suffers. He's no longer active. He's passive. And his suffering was a witness to the centurion. John Calvin once said, it's wonderful that an irreligious man who had not been instructed in the Jewish law and was ignorant of true religion should form so correct a judgment from the signs which he beheld. So the cross in short Because we can talk for the rest of our lives about what the cross means. But in short, the cross means that God suffered to redeem you. That God the Father, as well as God the Son, suffered to bring you close to him. The temple had this great Babylonian curtain. It was a Babylonian tapestry. It was an enormous piece of fabric hanging between the holy place, and the temple court. And you could see the heavens, the starry hosts, and the earth and the firmament, all uh, the, the sea and the earth and the starry heavens, all depicted on this great tapestry. And that tapestry, that curtain hanging there, it represented the fact that sinful humanity 
had, did not have access into the presence of a righteous, holy God. And when Jesus died, the passage tells us that that curtain unnaturally tore from the top to the bottom, not from the bottom up, as though people had done that. It tore from the top down during a great earthquake. And so you see that God suffered to break down, to tear open the barrier between you and him. And that's what the cross means. Now, I want to ask you a question. Why is it difficult to look at the cross and see what the centurion saw? I want to know what you think. Why is it difficult to look at the cross and see what the centurion saw in Jesus? Yeah. We're looking at it after the fact. Okay. Yeah. So a visceral, marvelous experience to him. For some of us who have grown up in a church culture, in a Christian culture, we've heard this hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of times. But for the centurion, it was brand new. Yeah. But he recognized in Jesus, hanging dead on the cross, a righteous man, a just man, the son of God. Not everybody feels that way about Jesus. Why is it hard to look at the cross and see what the centurion saw? Any other thoughts? Yeah. It's very difficult to hear a story of intense pain and suffering, and it's easy not to want to deal with it. I saw somebody else. Yeah. From a secular human perspective, you would look at Jesus dying on the cross as he was the son of God. He lost. He looks like a failure. Why would God let himself die? And as a matter of fact, that's a huge stumbling block, not only for agnostics and atheists and people with no religion, but for people of other religions. The death of God, the, the, the suffering of, of a man who claimed to be God is, um, is, is just uh, offensive uh, to people from some other faiths. And so since, since Jesus Christ... Has been, was on the earth. For the last 2,000 years, Gentiles and Jews of various cultures and religions have tried to find ways of saying that didn't happen. Uh, Jesus didn't suffer. Somebody else suffered. That guy, Simon, he was really the one who, who got on the cross and suffered. Or it just looked like Jesus suffered. It was some kind of vision that everybody had. But he really couldn't have suffered. He was God. Or some people say, well, if he did suffer physically, then he couldn't have been God. And, and every Christian heresy and deviation from original biblical Christianity is in some form an attempt to say that there's no way that that can happen. Because of its great offense. And because it looks like God loses and God suffers. Another hand. Yeah. The centurion had obviously seen hundreds of crucifixions. 
that's really interesting. The centurion had obviously seen hundreds, right? Maybe thousands of crucifixions. Yeah. I mean, that's why the soldiers are, are that's why they treat Jesus the way they do. This is, this is just a day's work for them. They're enjoying it. He's watching a, and he's watching a man die when he's seen countless men die this way. But he died differently. Yeah. Okay, it's difficult to see what the centurion saw because we're desensitized to suffering in some sense and we're removed from it. Okay, yeah, in the back. Okay, you're not there. You're removed. You're you're removed by time, by experience and location. Maybe uh, two more in the back. Again, like somebody said earlier, we have the advantage of knowing how the story ends. What do you think? Yeah, that's right. Real Christianity is this is not the end of the story. Exactly. Appreciate your comments. I, I know it's a difficult, very difficult topic, and, and I appreciate your honesty. I think it's true that we have a very nearsighted view of suffering. When I say nearsighted view of suffering, I just mean it's hard to see beyond ourselves when we suffer and when we're hurting. I know that suffering isolates you, there's an aspect of suffering that is very lonely. And sometimes we believe that we're the only one who's going through it. You know what that feels like? To feel like nobody understands what you're going through. You're the only one who's been humiliated. You're the only one who's been traumatized. You're the only one who's been abandoned. We want to believe sometimes that people don't know what we're going through. That people don't understand us. As a matter of fact, it's very easy to believe that God doesn't understand what you're going through that he's far that he's distant that he doesn't really care it's easy to begin to think that way you may may have thought that way all your life or you may be tempted to think that way right now 
that you're the only one. But I hope you can see from the cross that it's not true. Even if nobody you know has been abandoned like you have, Jesus has been. The cross shows us that you are not the only one who feels the way you feel. You are not the only one who only understands what you're going through. But the cross still offends people. It's still hard to look at it. Maybe one of the best devotionals I've ever read is by a woman named Trisha Macari Rhodes. She wrote a devotion called, I have it right up here if you want to take a look at it later. She wrote a devotional called Contemplating the Cross. It's excellent. And she talks about how uh, Mel Gibson, once again, was a celebrated Hollywood actor until he produced The Passion of the Christ. And then so much controversy developed over that one movie. And as she was talking about it, she said this about the cross. Though broadly embraced as a religious icon, when shown for what it really is, the cross descends like a brooding storm, ominous, unsettling. While there always have been those who have found in Christ's passion the means to save their souls, most regard any notion of their need for redemption as foolishness. Let me suggest, if you're having a hard time looking at the cross and accepting it, let me just gently suggest that you may be offended by God's suffering because you know that you should have been hanging there. The reason the thought of God's suffering is so offensive is because it reveals the need for redemption. And if there is a need for redemption then you need to be redeemed. And the idea of you having to suffer when you're the one who's been victimized, when you're the one who's been abandoned, when you're the one who's been traumatized, when people don't understand what you're going through, the idea that you should suffer, that you deserve suffering. As people who suffer, we think that suffering is below us. The fact that God had to suffer. It causes us to really consider why. And until you're willing to admit that Jesus was hanging there for your offenses against God. You'll never be able to embrace the cross, friend. The Bible says, for our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5. Now, if you embrace God's suffering, it will redeem you. If you see that in your suffering, God can empathize with you, not only sympathize, but empathize with you, he will redeem your suffering. The cross shows you that you can trust him. You can act, what we see in Jesus hanging on the cross is that you in your suffering can actually trust your creator. Christianity is the only faith system on the planet that tells us that God knows what it means to suffer. And that when you suffer, your creator fully sympathize with you and even grieves with you. 
The cross invites us to draw close to God. He's not deserting you in your suffering. The cross shows you that he is identifying with you. In the cross, God identified with the most wretchedness of all human experience, one commentator says. And so what we see in the cross is that Jesus was deserted in his suffering so that you won't have to be deserted in yours. And that's the comfort and the hope that we have. So suffering in faith, because who, who just wants to suffer? None of us. But suffering in faith, suffering by entrusting yourself to your creator who gave his son for you. Suffering in faith becomes a means of drawing close to God. When we look at the cross, suffering doesn't have to drive us away from God, although we want it to. We want it to. Suffering becomes a means of drawing us close. Because in suffering, we find a like-mindedness with our creator. Can you imagine how profound that is? That in suffering, you now finally can become like-minded with your creator. Not pushing him away from you, but saying, yes, yes, you've been pierced just like I've been pierced. You've received splinters just like I have. And now, through faith, suffering is not only a means by which you draw close and like-minded grief with your creator, now suffering becomes your witness. As you suffer with God in partnership, in solidarity with God, now suffering becomes your witness. I have a friend of mine who, who once said to me that a nurse said to him, you know, Christians, like real Christians... Not just the people that say, yeah, I want a priest to visit me or a minister to visit me when I die because I'm technically Christian. But real Christians who actually believe this stuff about Jesus, they die differently. They suffer differently in their hospital beds than everybody else does. So you see, by suffering in faith, people can now look at your life and look at your suffering and say, truly, this Jesus that you follow must be the Son of God. So to appreciate God's salvation, you really must understand God's suffering. That's the way to it. And I, I pray that you will embrace the suffering of God. Maybe you've heard this a thousand times. Well, be reminded of it today, friend. Embrace the suffering of God. And in faith, trust him with your own suffering. And if you've never put your faith in this Jesus like that, I, I challenge you to consider it, friend. I challenge you to look hard at the cross, to stop looking away. Really think about it and consider the fact that your creator knows your suffering because Jesus hung on a cross. Trust him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now with sober hearts, with grateful hearts, seeing perhaps the most beautiful thing that the world has ever known. A man giving himself up for love. Help us to embrace him. In his name, amen.